chapter 6. Thank you, got on on both channels probably there. Chapter 6, I'd like to read for us verses 13 through verse 20. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. It's really a, a Greek translates a Hebraism that's something like blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Over the years, I spent more than a little time in waiting rooms, sometimes in my doctor's own waiting room, trying to ignore the TV they all have now while I'm reading a book, and sometimes in the emergency room waiting area, sitting with friends, sometimes in the ICU waiting room with some family nervously waiting for word that their loved one's going to pull through. The ICU waiting rooms, like trauma and cardiac care, are, are different from the others. People often spend a long time there, sometimes a day or two or three, and they get to know the other people waiting. They understand each other because they're all waiting for the same thing. Will my husband come through the surgery? Will my baby ever walk again? What am I going to do if my wife doesn't pull through? Wes Seelinger says that the intensive care waiting room is different from any other place in the world. And the people who wait are different. They can't do enough for each other. No one is rude. The distinctions of race and class melt away. Each person pulls for everyone else. The church is like that group of people in the ICU waiting room. We don't start off knowing each other, but we have this sense that we're all in it together and we pull for each other. Even so, waiting is still hard. Michael Card calls it the most bitter lesson a believing heart has to learn. But waiting isn't optional. You can't opt out. Everyone has to do it, great and small alike, saints and sinners. Moses waited in the desert for 40 years. David had to wait something like 20 years between the time he was chosen to be king and the day he was of his coronation. Paul waited three years before getting acquainted with the apostles and beginning his missionary work. The last thing Jesus said to his disciples before he left them was, wait, wait for the gift my father promised. The prophet Habakkuk waited for God to show up during years of turmoil and hardship. He knew that God would reveal himself sooner or later, and he counseled others to wait for that revelation. Though it linger, he said, wait for it. It will certainly come. 
In Hebrews 6.12, our author urges his readers to show faith and patience. Then in verse 15, he uses the verb form of that word. The NIV translates it, uh, uh, verse 15, so after waiting patiently, but patiently is not an adverb there. It's all one word, this, this verb that ha- has to do with waiting, going through difficulty to wait. Abraham waited patiently, the father of the faithful, to obtain what God had promised. We are in the waiting room. Some of us are waiting for jobs. Some of us are waiting for spouses. Some are waiting for spouses they already have to love them and join them following Jesus. We're waiting for healing, for wayward children to return, for circumstances to change. Some of us who are waiting are doing okay right now. Others are pretty broken up. But we're all waiting. That's the nature of living in a world that doesn't keep time with God. One of the most famous plays of the 20th century in fact, many critics call it the most important play of the 20th century, was Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. There are only two characters in the entire play. They stand on a hill by a tree, you've got to get the imagery here, conversing while they wait for the mysterious Godot to arrive, but he never comes. Certainly, Beckett intended us to think of Godot as God. God, O is how it's spelled and to leave us with the impression that he never shows up. That we wait and wait and wait, but he never comes. Beckett's play came to the stage in the late 1940s, not long after World War II ended. But people were saying that kind of thing long before Samuel Beckett. The psalmist talks about it in in Psalm 94. They say, he writes, the Lord doesn't see. The God of Jacob pays no heed. He pays no heed. He's not going to show up. And smart people must plan their lives in the light of that fact. So are we foolish to wait for God? Should we take matters into our own hands? Does everything depend on us? Our author says, no, God will show up. Our hope is grounded in his character, his promise, and his oath. This section follows a very somber warning. In fact, when we broke a month ago to do the Bold Faith Initiative, I hated to stop right there. The author has just finished explaining that some people who fall away from Christ can't be brought back. He's just warned his readers that unproductiveness invites a curse. His words make us take a hard look at ourselves and ask if we're the ones in danger of falling away, if it's our lives that are unproductive and about to be cursed. But after that, most alarming warning comes the most reassuring passage in the entire letter. The warning was given to people who, chapter 5, verse 11, were lazy, who were not going on to maturity, chapter 6, verse 1. The assurance is given to those who are, verse 11, diligent to the very end, who through faith and patience, verse 12, inherit what was promised. The warning is not intended for the diligent, and the assurance is not intended for the lazy. It's sad when people get that mixed up, when the diligent are unsettled by the warning and the lazy are comforted by the reassurance. The warning was based on people's lack of faithfulness. The assurance is based on God's perfect faithfulness. 
Those who are in danger are in danger because of their own character. Those who are assured are assured because of the character of God. He's not unjust, verse 10. But he is certain to keep his promises. The message of this text is much the same as Paul's message to the Philippians. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion, Paul wrote in in verse 6 of the first chapter. But he didn't stop there or say, so there's nothing left for you to do. Just take it easy. Sit back and relax. That's not the take-home in Philippians or here. Paul, who says God will complete what he started, also says, since it's God who's working salvation in you, make sure that you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Our author follows the same kind of line. Since God is sure to keep his end of the bargain, make sure that you're diligent to the very end, trusting God and waiting patiently. Waiting is not the same as being idle. Our author has just used, verses 7 through 9, the image of a farmer's field, which is a favorite one in Scripture, to illustrate this point. St. James uses the same illustration to urge us to wait patiently. Be patient then, brothers, he says, and he's using that same verb that's translated as waiting patiently in verse 15, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for autumn, for the autumn and spring rains? When the farmer waits for harvest, does he sit on his hands and do nothing? Not if he's a good farmer. He's diligent. He, he's applying fertilizer and warding off pests. He irrigates if he has the equipment. He gets everything ready, his combine, his tractors and trucks and storage bins and the people he needs to contact, and he watches the crop until the day is right. He does all this without once imagining that the power to make the crop grow or ripen lies with him. That power lies with God, but he wants to put himself in the place where he can receive what God chooses to give. And so it is with us. Our efforts aren't intended to force God's hand but to put us in the place where we can receive what he's promised. We know we can't make that happen. We come to a point where we must let go, not of our responsibilities ever, but of our need to control. Our job is to patiently trust God, to fulfill his promise. Not before, long before he died, Henry Nouwen finished a book called Sabbatical Journeys. And in it, he writes about his friends, the flying rudellas. He had friends who were trapeze artists. And he writes that on the trapeze, there's a flyer and there's a catcher. They each have their job to do. All the flyer has to do is put himself in the right place at the right time. You know, the right height, traveling at the right speed, and then let go. His job is to remain still and in the right position so that the catcher can grab hold of him. The Rudellas told Nouwen that the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. That way is the way of disaster. Rather, he must wait in absolute trust, and the catcher will catch him. But he must wait. The Christian life is like practicing the trapeze. There is this constant repetition of getting into the right place, Through diligence and prayer, worship, Bible reading, fellowship, and then letting go and waiting for God to catch us. The first time you let go can be pretty terrifying. But if you keep at it a while, it becomes more exciting than terrifying. 
And then it becomes pure joy. But if you try to take control and catch the catcher, you're going to have a hard time. Now, no matter how determined you are to get in the right place or how good you look getting there, it will mean nothing if the catcher isn't there to take hold of you and carry you back to safety. In the Christian life, the great thing is not our skill, but God's faithfulness. Our author understood that. He mentions three strong incentives for us to trust God, and they all have to do with who God is and what he's done. We can wait patiently in faith because of God's promise, that's verses 13 through 15, God's oath, that's verses 16 through 18, and God's son, that's verses 19 and 20. God's promise, God's oath, God's son. Abraham had God's promise. We were first told about it in Genesis chapter 12. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Upon receiving that promise, Abraham didn't say, wow, that's nice, and go about his business. He adjusted his life on the basis of that promise, the way the farmer adjusts his life on the promise of harvest. Now, still he had to wait patiently, verse 15, for the promise to be fulfilled, and it took about 25 years just to see the first stage of fulfillment. But through faith and patience, he obtained what had been promised. We also have promises. We've been promised the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, resurrection, the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not without reason. The Spirit is called the Spirit of promise. God has promised to work all things together for our good. Nothing irredeemable can ever happen to those who love God. He's promised never to leave us or forsake us. How do we receive these promises? We receive them by waiting patiently in faith, trusting God. That word translated, waiting patiently, I told you it was a verb, is comprised of two roots, one meaning long and the other having to do with anger. A person who waits in this sense goes long without expressing anger. He doesn't lose his temper with other people or with God. And the person who doesn't lose his temper becomes tempered like steel. He becomes a precision instrument in the hand of God to accomplish his purpose. Abraham had God's promise. That should have been enough. But God went further and for Abraham's sake took an oath Look at verse 16. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. That is a remarkable thing. God not only made a promise, he took an oath to confirm the promise. The word translated oath is derived from a word meaning enclosure. When a person takes an oath, he encloses himself within the words he's spoken. He willingly traps himself within his word. God made a promise to Abraham and then added an oath, trapping himself in his own word. 
Now, surely God's promise is enough. Why add an oath? I think the answer to that question is very significant and gives us insight into the character of God. He added the oath because that's what people did. It's what they were accustomed to. It's what they needed in order to trust. God did not stand on his pride and say, look, either you trust me or you don't. If my word isn't good enough for you, then forget you. Here is yet another evidence of the humility, for lack of a better word, of God. He doesn't wait for us to come to him. He comes to us. He speaks our language, wears the clothes of our flesh. He takes the form of a servant and humbles himself. If we need an oath to strengthen our weak faith, he doesn't criticize us and call us names. He takes the oath. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he's unlike any other God men have ever worshipped. Look at verse 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, those two things in the context are his promise and his oath, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. The original reads something like this. So that we, the ones fleeing to seize the hope set before us, the same words used of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12, might have strong encouragement. Now, God's encouragement never induces anyone to laziness, but always to diligence. Verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Remember the earlier warning, chapter 2, against drifting away? Here's the solution to drift. Hope. It anchors our souls. Notice that hope follows Jesus. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. We're going to get into this in the next few weeks. In fact, this is going to become one of the dominant themes, that Jesus is even now ministering on our behalf as high priest. It enters behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Here's the thing to get from that. Hope is never independent of Jesus. It's always linked to what he's done or what he's doing. Remove hope from active faith in Jesus. Make it stand on its own, and it immediately starts to wither and die. People who don't have hope are not able to wait. Now take that for just a moment. Apply it to your own circumstances. People who don't have hope are not able to wait. People like Abraham who wait patiently are people who have taken hold of hope. Paul writes, if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently, using that same verb that we have in our passage. That kind of waiting shapes us. It grows us. It turns us into the kind of people God can use. I like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of that passage. Waiting, he writes, does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. This is life in the waiting room. Sometimes we don't like that. Those who hope in the character of God and trust in his promises can stick it out. They have strong encouragement to do so. Those without hope give up on God and try to go it on their own. 
There's a big difference between the strong encouragement that comes from trusting God and the weak kind of optimism that assumes that everything will turn out the way we want. Admiral James Stockdale was the highest-ranking POW in the Vietnam War. He spent eight years in the Hanoi Hilton, where he was tortured on 20 separate occasions. He's a tough guy, real tough guy. At one point, he cut himself badly with a razor and beat himself with a stool so that the Vietnamese couldn't use him in one of their propaganda films to show the world that they were treating their prisoners humanely. In an interview, he was asked, who didn't make it out? Interview not that long ago. Jim Collins asked him, who didn't make it out? And he answered, that's easy, the optimists. And Collins said, I don't get that. What do you mean by that? And he said, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come, and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again, and they died of a broken heart. And then Admiral Stockdale added, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront your current reality, whatever it might be. I would add the Christian must never confuse faith in the character of God and hope in his promises with the vague feeling that God will work things out the way we want. That's not biblical faith. It's just wishful thinking. And there's a world of difference between the two. In the book, The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey writes about a tombstone in an Episcopal cemetery in Louisiana. The uh, tombstone is the tombstone for one of his friend's grandmothers. It has just one word carved on it. Waiting. The woman whose body lies beneath that stone didn't confuse her wishes with God's promises. Her wishes may not have come true, but she went to her grave still trusting in God, knowing that not even death can keep him from fulfilling his promise. She's not waiting in vain. Now, how can you tell whether you're trusting God's character and hoping in his promises or just trying to be optimistic that things will work out? The answer is simple. Real faith and hope produce diligent activity, whereas a false optimism produces a drifting passivity. Paul understood that, and he wrote about the work of faith and the endurance of hope. That hope will not disappoint us. Take hold of it and be encouraged. Be encouraged and work eagerly. Work eagerly and wait patiently, and you will not wait in vain. Now let's pray. I assume today that God's speaking to someone who's tired of waiting and is about to give up, to lose temper or go his or her own way. If you're that person, don't do it. Get in the place you need so that God can catch you. Trust him. He'll come through. 
God, by your grace, give us strong encouragement today. Those who are wavering and ready to break and go their own way and try to take things into their own hands, would you hold them back? Would you speak words of encouragement to them? Show them how to get in the place where you can catch them. And keep us faithful in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to stand, and if those who are going to distribute the elements would come forward while we sing, please. built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, 